Father, you know us and you know that we uh, are weak, so weak in our flesh, and yet you give us this uh, unlimited power by your Holy Spirit. Lord, if we would just humble ourselves and come to you and ask for your grace, Lord, your response is always to give grace. Lord, I thank you that you give your Holy Spirit to those who ask. Lord, I thank you so much that none of these things depend on me, that it's your goodness and your love for us that that changes us and makes us new. Lord, I pray you'd forgive us. Lord, we've all sinned. We probably sinned this week. Lord, we ask that you would just forgive us and help us to turn away from all the things which distract and, uh, and put them behind us and focus our eyes on you, Jesus, to look at nothing, to consider nothing else right now but you. Lord, you are all in all to us, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Nothing else matters but you, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to look at the church in Sardis. And the title of today's sermon is Watch Out for the M Cycle. Watch out for the M Cycle. I know you don't know what that means now. But by the end of today, you will have a very good understanding of what the M Cycle is and why today we are going to learn about that. So... Just a brief introduction. We've been going through these seven letters, and on these seven letters, there's four different applications. There's, there's one interpretation that, that Jesus wrote a letter to an actual church there in Asia Minor. Pastor John, the apostle, he oversaw these seven churches there in Asia Minor, and he, Jesus said, I want you to write a letter to those seven churches, and that's the application. They were real churches in real cities with real problems. But there's four different applications for us. There's the personal application, where we can all glean something personally from these letters. There's the ecclesiastical application that each church in the entire world could look at these letters and glean something, some application, something that they could change or be mindful of. There's, what else? What? Personal, prophetical. Local was for the actual church. And then the fourth one is prophetical. In other words, these seven letters speak of seven different times in church history. As they progress through the letters, we've seen that they speak of the next period in church history. And we've gotten into some real kind of nitty gritty uh, stuff. I mean, we've talked about, we've gotten, gotten into when Constantine came and that period after Constantine. First, we started with Ephesus, that ap- apostolic church of r- the first hundred years after Jesus, where the apostles were still walking around saying, I talked to Jesus, and, and they were really concerned about doctrine, but they forgot love, huh? And so they were rebuked by Jesus and said, hey, return to your first love, guys. And then we talked about the church of Smyrna. So from 100 AD to 313, there was persecution. The entire world persecuted the church. The, it was government policy to kill the Christians. And there was 10 waves of persecutions, and we saw that in the church of Smyrna, but we also saw that Jesus was really happy with that church. He was so overjoyed because when they were crushed, they would smell so wonderful to God. And we talked about how that applied to our life. And then we studied the church in Pergamos, which was the time of Constantine from 313 when Constantine became the emperor. And then he said, everyone now has to be Christians. I make it a law. Of course, not everyone was, even though it was the law. And so Constantine, he married the church with government or the world. And he said, hey, we're all just one now. And that was a big problem in, in that church. It was called, the Pergamos means 
inappropriate marriage. That's what the word pergamos means. Remember, per comes from the word, like we get pervert, inappropriate. Gamos, marriage, monogamy. Well, we see that church, when the church mixed with the world and the government, it's not good. And we talked about politics in the church and how that shouldn't uh, really be our heart's desire, but knowing Jesus and loving Jesus should be our heart's desire. Then last week, we talked about the next time from about 600 AD, when uh, through 517 about, you have the time where the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, was the main body, and, and all the Christians. I mean, if you and I lived during that time, we would have been part of that one group church. And, and they, they kind of were all under the, the, the Pope, and the popes, there were some good popes, and then there were some not-so-good popes, and we learned about some of the things that Jesus took issue with, uh, praying to other people, and, and the, uh, the word Thyatira means continual sacrifice, and Jesus has an issue with their, their beliefs about the continual sacrifice, and we talked about all those things, all right? So we are kind of tough on that church last week, weren't we? But this week, we get to a new church called Sardis, and this is going to speak about the Protestant church. And we're going to see that Jesus has some pretty harsh things to say about the Protestant church as well. And uh, you're, you're thinking, well, I thought, I thought it was the, the Protestant Reformation happened in 1517, and, then, and that's where we live today, was we just have the Protestant church and the Catholic church, and that's, that's it. But that's not actually the truth. There's actually four different churches, as far as the book of Revelation and these churches go, existing in the world today. You have the Catholic church that extends all the way till Jesus comes back. You have the Protestant church that we're going to study today extends all its way until Jesus comes back. Then we're going to see that the evangelical missionary church next week, real great church, that extends from the 1800s all the way till when Jesus comes back. And then the last church is the last day's lukewarm church. That also extends all the way till Jesus comes back. And Jesus is coming back soon. Amen? Man, that was a lot of fast talking. All right. Do you feel like you just got a wave of information over you. Okay, well, all of that is kind of summarizing a lot of stuff that we've been through. Now we're going to get into our text for today, which is Revelation chapter 1, 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel in the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know the hour in which I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." All right, so we're going to go ahead and break that down now and go line by line and discover what it means for us. He says, to the church of Sardis, right. Well, Sardis, uh, I got a picture here of what Sardis looks like today, and this is a picture here of where Sardis looks like today. 
There you go. That's what Sardis looks like today. Uh, that's, that's actually a church that they had built in Sardis. But you can kind of see the mountain ranges there. And Sardis used to be kind of built up on top of those mountain ranges. The whole city was kind of up. And, and the way it was designed is that you had three sides, had steep, steep uh, cliffs on, either, on three sides. And then one side was a, still a, a cliff, but not as steep. And that's the side that everyone would come up. And that's going to come into play. Uh, because as we look at the history of Sardis, we see some very important things happened. In 549 BC, the Persians conquered it. But you might think, how did they conquer? Because Sardis is pretty much, if you look at it, it's an unpenetrable city. It's, it's got a great location for defense of itself. And what happened is the Persians came up, and led by Cyrus, and, and the Persians were, uh, you know, they were surrounding the city and trying to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we kill these people? How do we get up there and take this city, right? And, and so what they did is they just were watching, they were trying to build a rampart that wasn't really working. So they were watching, and one day they saw... Uh, one of the uh, soldiers up top, he dropped his helmet and it, and it fell down the cliff and it landed kind of down there in the bottom of the cliff. And the Persian soldiers were watching him and they said, oh, okay, there's a helmet, all right. Well, they go to sleep and they wake up the next morning and the helmet is gone. See, that soldier had come down and, and got the helmet and got back up without the Persians seeing it. And so they thought, and they were like, hmm, how did he get down without us seeing? We have the entire thing surrounded. Well, they started to really think about it, and they started searching for an alternate way up. And what they found was there's a paved, like stared, very narrow path through the canyon that is an alternate way up. And so the, the Persians found this, and they climbed up it, and guess what? The entrance to the city from that little thing wasn't even guarded. They, the, the um, sardines, we'll call them. <laughs> they, I don't know, what do, you, what do you call people from Sardis? Sardines, right? All right. We'll do, <laughs> I love you, Jonathan. Okay, so the sardines were not guarding this, but they didn't even think that they needed to guard it because of their position was so impenetrable that this one little path would not be a problem. Well, they came up, found these secret stairs, and conquered the city easily. Well, guess what happens? 300 years go by to 214, and then you have this king named Antiochus the Great. He was a Greek king. You guys will recognize his name probably from history as being one of the most wicked people ever. Well, he also besieged the city. Again, they are independent after 300 years, and same thing happens. He surrounds them. They find the secret stairs. They get to the top of the secret stairs, and nobody's guarding it again. And they conquer the city again. And you're like, sardines, come on. What are you doing here? Because they didn't watch. They didn't watch. This, this is the actual city that we're talking about, Sardis. Jesus, he's, he's saying, you guys have a history of not paying attention, of not watching. You guys have a tendency to rest in your position, and it's going to become a problem. You rest in your position, and it's going to become a problem. You're saying, why are you teaching us all this history? Well, it's actually very applicable 
to the spiritual state of this church at that time, of, to the Protestant church as a whole, and to us personally. All right. So he says, Jesus brings out here, he says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So remember, in each of these letters, we see a few things that Jesus does consistently. And one of them is he, is he brings out a description of himself that he had already stated in chapter one. So chapter one is a description of Jesus and it talks about all these different parts of Jesus and how cool and amazing he is. And, and in each of these letters, he brings out one of those and says, this one is the one that's really important for you to understand. And in this one, he says, I have the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, seven spirits, that sounds kind of strange. It sounds like we're in a ghost house with seven spirits going around. It's like something you'd hear in a weird horror movie. Well, it shouldn't be that scary for us. In fact, everything in the book of Revelation is simply a reference to something written in the Old Testament. This, I know it seems weird when we read the book of Revelation, but it's not actually that hard to understand when you have a good grasp of the Old Testament. And if you're reading along through the Old Testament, you get to Isaiah chapter 11. Go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. And we see the seven spirits or the sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. This, isn't, this shouldn't be something we have to wonder, well, what, it, what are these seven spirits? And I, I read commentaries, and sometimes the commentaries go to great lengths to try to make a point of what something is, and they're just, they're just making stuff up, and it's really frustrating to me. Like, what gives you the right to make something up about what the Bible means? Let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. So when I hear about seven spirits in the book of Revelation, I need to go back and find out where, where did I ever hear seven spirits or seven descriptions of the Holy Spirit? And that's here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And this is that him is talking about Jesus. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. And he's saying, when Jesus comes, the spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the sevenfold spirit of God. It's just a description of seven ways that the Holy Spirit affects your life or should affect your life. It's seven ways that the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus. And so he brings this up to this church for some really important reasons. Because this church is going to forget about the Holy Spirit. And, God, and, and Jesus is saying here, guys, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is how I accomplished everything I accomplished. I was really wise because the Holy Spirit made me wise. I was loving because the Holy Spirit made me loving. I had to fear the Lord. I, all these descriptions were in my life because I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And you guys are going to miss out on that. You're going to forget about the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't want to do that. So anything we need in our spiritual lives comes from Jesus and his Holy Spirit. He holds the Spirit in his hand, it says. These seven spirits are in his hand. So if you need something from Jesus, what do you do? You ask him. And what is his response when he's asked? He gives. It's so good how the Lord works. It's so simple. 
He doesn't say you have to do anything. I just have these and I give my spirit to whoever would ask. John 17 teaches us that. Well, then it says he has also, in his other hand, he's got some seven stars. And we studied a little bit about this, but what these seven stars are, are the pastors or the messengers to the churches. And, and what he's saying here is that um, when Jesus wants to, what, this, what Jesus wants this church to think about is the Holy Spirit and, and their pastors. The Holy Spirit's needed in this church. It's vital to have a living and growing church. It cannot be forgotten. It can't be put on the back burner because you're more interested in the pastor or the leader. Jesus loves pastors, but in a healthy church, they're just servants of all. They don't desire attention or power. They don't try to wow people with their intellect or their plans or strategies or their systems. Jesus is the one way, the one supplier of spiritual things. And the only thing that matters is Jesus. And he places pastors to serve people and to be helpers of joy, not to put a trip on you and make you feel like you failed every week. Now, sometimes they give the word of God, and the word of God says you're lame and you break the law. So that's the job of a pastor sometimes. But then he's supposed to take that broken heart and pour life-giving good news of the gospel onto you. So we're going to see that, that they had a little bit of an, a struggle with this in the Protestant church. They really liked their pastors. And so they kind of put their pastors up on these pedestals. And we're going to see that that's the beginning of the M cycle. The M cycle. He says, Jesus continues on here. He says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. So Jesus is fully aware of the failures of this church. And what he says here is, he says they have a name, a name, a name. And in Greek, that word name is onama. And we have a term, denomination, that has that word as its centerpiece. What Jesus is saying is, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. So, we're going to talk about denominations. There's a reason why denominations exist. And Jesus isn't too happy about some of these things. He says that people are trusting in the name of a group that they belong to. And they're neglecting something hugely important, which is his spirit. We'll get into this, okay? Here's the problem with this Protestant church during history. They followed a man for the most part, not the Holy Spirit all the time. Let me explain how this would work. God would raise up a man like Luther. Luther was a Catholic priest who started to read the Bible. And when he read the Bible, he realized that the church had grown very corrupt. And he wasn't the first one to realize this. In fact, for 200 years, there had been a lot of rumblings and, and a lot of the leadership in the Catholic Church has said, we need some reformation, that things are not all right here. We need to, we, there's, there's just some integrity problems. There's some government problems. We need to, to have some reformation get back. So for a couple hundred years, this has been going on. But Luther, he, he read the scriptures, 
and he realized some things needed to change. And so he made a list of 95 things that needed to really be talked about, and he put them on a, uh, he nailed them to the Gutenberg something or other, I don't know. I'm not good with names like that. Some church, he nailed them to the front. And, and he wanted, the, this was a way that he could start a discussion. Well, the ruling Catholic people at that time were pretty corrupt, and they said, we don't want to discuss, we just want to kill you. And uh, so they did. They expelled him, and they tried to kill him. And, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to start teaching the Bible. I don't care what you guys say. I'm pretty upset that you just want to kill people, whoever disagrees with you. And so I'm going to start teaching the Bible. And that's what he did. He taught the Bible. Many, many, many people joined with him, some for good reasons, like, oh, that's what the Bible says. Okay, let's go with it. And some for political reasons, saying, I really don't like the Catholic Church either. Let's pretty much remove Germany from Catholic rule. And that's why he got so much support so quickly, is because it got real political at the same time. So all of Germany said, out of here, Catholics. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. And so they said, we are now Lutherans a name that we're alive, a name. They really trusted in this name. Now, again, Luther, great guy. God used him. It started a movement. So it starts with a man. Then people start to follow this man. People get excited about what God's doing through this man. He, He gets this ministry from God. And the ministry becomes a movement. But then the movement becomes a machine. And soon the machine becomes a museum. People decided to follow him. They named their churches after him. And this happened over and over, not just with Luther, but with many people. Calvin was the next guy to come on the scene. You guys have heard of Calvin, right? Zwingli was the next guy to come on the scene. All these guys, over and over, God would use them and powerfully give them a ministry, sharing the gospel with people. And then people were like, well, I like how this guy did it, and I like how this guy did it. Today, 500 years after this, we have 33,000 denominations in the world. Names. And what does every denomination have in common? A name. A name. Well, we are right because we believe in this and that. We do things this way or that way. And so we're going to give ourselves a name, a title, so that everyone who comes, drives down the street, will see our name and they'll know that we can go into that church and this is the way that they do things and this is the way that they believe. And God's saying, I never wanted it to work that way. I wanted people to see your love and to see me in you. And that's what would be attractive to them. Not a name or a title or a denomination. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul teaches us some about this. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12, you guys should probably see this for your own eyes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Right after the book of Romans, which is right after Acts, right after the Gospels. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. And the church in Corinth was dealing with some divisions. 
and Paul wasn't too happy about them either. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that's Peter, or I am of Christ. He says in verse 13, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is what becomes the problem in the Protestant church, is this M cycle, this division. God would raise up a man, and you give this man a ministry. The ministry would become a movement. The movement would then get so big, it becomes a machine. They stop seeking God. They stop seeking God's Holy Spirit. They just do what they've been always doing over and over and over again. It becomes this constant machine, and they don't care who they run over, who they hurt. They just are doing what they do over and over. And then that machine, you look back on it, and it's a museum. It's just dead, and everyone in it is passionless, and they just, why do you do what you do? Oh, just what we've always done. Nobody's seeking God anymore. And this has happened over and over and over again, where it's almost ridiculous. It's like, didn't this happen to you guys before? Like the city of Sardis, they got conquered over and over the same way because they weren't watching. They weren't watching. They weren't paying attention to things that could come in and destroy them. And Jesus is like, come on, guys. This was all about me, and you guys made it about the man, the movement, the ministry, the machine, and then it's going to just become a museum. It's going to fall and fade. And you look at denominations today. Many of them have already entered the state of museum where you go in and it's like a museum. It's just dead. There's no more fight. There's no more life. There's no more this struggle to trust Jesus and share the gospel with the world. They are fine driving their Lexus every week morning into church and giving their 10% and then they go home and that's it. Where's the life? Where is the life? It became all about the name of the church, which, you know, they thought was telling people what we believed about things. That's why they started all the different names. Oh, well, we want people to know what we believe. That's not how God's intended it to be. He wants people to be able to know God through you through our churches, through the church. That's the whole purpose of the church being here, is that people could come to know God and his character. God's not concerned about people knowing your character. He wants people to know his character. He, Jesus gives them a warning here. He's going to grow in this. We're going to see how it's explained here. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, which are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Again, this city was always falling into that same trap, always, over and over again. And this cycle is the same trap for the Protestant church. The man becomes a ministry, becomes a movement, becomes a machine, which eventually becomes the museum. Even Admiral Akbar knows that this is a trap. Well done, sir. Well done. 
So Jesus says, strengthen the things which remain. I don't want you to get trapped. I want you to get stronger. And so he says, stay strong with a few things that, that started. So the Protestant Reformation started with some good things. And I got a picture here of the five solas. And the five solas were these five ideas that sprung up out of the Reformation that really helped correct the doctrinal failures during the Catholic Church. This has brought everything back. And so you had solo scriptura, which meant the Bible alone is the authority. No man, no man has the authority of the Bible. No man can contradict the Bible. So if the Bible doesn't say something, it doesn't exist. If the Bible says to do something a certain way, that's what you have to do. Because the Bible was given by God's authority. God gave warnings and says, don't add to my word of God or else I'm going to add to you the plagues written in my word. He said, I am a God who does not lie. And if I give you my word, the word is all that you need which led to solo gratia, which is by grace alone. This talks about salvation being by grace alone. We do not add any works to God's salvation. We are saved by grace alone through faith. If you believe in the Bible alone, then the Bible clearly teaches salvation is by grace alone. So and that leads you to by sola fide, which is by faith alone. There, you cannot add anything to faith. You either believe God's word that he's going to save you, or you don't. You believe you have to do other things to get his salvation from him. Like he's holding certain things back until you perform certain actions. And we see that that is not scriptural. That's not what the Bible says. So Jesus, he's saying, these things are good. Hang on to these things. It's the other things that are a problem, Jesus is going to say. Going on solo Christus only by Jesus alone. Nothing else. No one else. There is no other mediator between God and man but Jesus. We shouldn't pray to anyone else, and they corrected these things with, with the Reformation. And then solo deo gloria, to God's glory alone. Only God's glory. In other words, it doesn't matter if people like me, think I'm great, I just want God to be glorified. It doesn't matter if I have power, if, if I have influence in this world, I only want God to be great. These are the, the five solos. He's saying all of these things are great. Hold on to these good doctrines that you guys have, have found in the word of God. They really fixed a lot with these problems, you know, uh, but they, they, we're going to see that they missed two other ones. I wish there was a couple other solas. Uh, we'll see that Jesus is going to address two doctrinal problems in the Protestant church, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll discover those here at the end. Just because you believe the right things doesn't make you alive. Just because you believe the right things doesn't make you alive. Just because you believe the right things doesn't make you alive. Only Jesus himself makes you alive through the Holy Spirit whom he gives to those who trust him and believe him in him alone. He says in verse 3, Remember therefore how you received and how you heard and hold fast and repent Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So he tells them, remember how you received and heard. What really affected your heart? Was it a doctrine that you learned? Or was it Jesus when you found out that Jesus died for you on the cross? Was it a doctrine of 
some fancy word that just blew your mind and changed your heart? Or was it when you heard about what Jesus did out of love? That he didn't have to, but he chose to die on the cross for you. That's what he's saying here. He said, remember how you received and how you heard. It's not all about doctrine. It's about love. God loves you and he wants you to love him back. And if you have a weird doctrine, he can deal with it. He's not going to reject you based on something like that. He wants your love and trust. That's what it's all about. That's how we enter into a relationship with God. When you get saved, you realize God loves me and he doesn't require anything of me in return. And oh my gosh, I'm just going to respond to that in love. Well, that's how he says he wants us to remember that. The list of character traits divided into sections and dispensations. This is how you, what doctrine is. You just, you're studying all the different character traits and that's good and profitable, but it's not what really changes our hearts. Love is. Love is. All these lists and all these things you learned, did they change your heart? No. It was what Jesus did on the cross. It, he, Jesus is saying here, hold fast to that. His words are hold fast. Remember that it's all about Jesus and how much he loves you and hold fast to that. Doctrine is great. Study your heart out. Hold fast though to me and how much I love you. That's what it's all about. So he says, you need to repent church of all your other motivations maybe you need to repent from going to seminary because you were doing that not because you loved me but you wanted to know more about me than other people that you wanted to be smart he says you need to repent of that repent of any other passions except loving me oh your real passion about doing good things great is it because you love god or because you're trying to earn favor with him that's a good thing to ask. It's a good question. Repent of any other plans or procedures. Turn back to Jesus. He's the source of all good doctrine, and he can teach you what you need to know. Just look, at, look to Jesus and love him. Jesus says, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So Jesus says, I'm going to dress up like the Hamburglar, and I'm going to come after you. Why would Jesus say, I'm going to dress up like the Hamburglar? Why does he liken himself to a thief? Hmm, why would Jesus do that? Maybe he wants us to think about other times in the Bible when he talked about a thief. You think Jesus is smart enough to put those two things together? Yeah, he is. So he does. He, he wants us to think, well, why are you talking about being a thief, Jesus? Hmm. What he's doing here is he's bringing up a specific area of their doctrine that's not right. They got messed up because of their intellectualism. And so what happened as the Protestant church grew is they started a lot of universities and they got very into studying the Bible. And they, they grew this intellectualism and, and they were trying to mix it with what they had known growing up as priests in the Catholic church. And, and what they did is that... Um, they developed a form of eschatology called amillennialism. And what that was, and, and the whole church kind of went this way, is they're saying, well, you know, we can't really understand 
uh, how all the eschatology works. So we're going to kind of keep what Augustine had said in 500 AD, uh, that there's no such thing as a real thousand-year reign of Jesus, but we're just going to kind of keep that and kind of look at Scripture through that vantage point. And, um, and so it means the rapture pointless. They didn't believe in the rapture. They didn't believe Jesus was coming back. They just thought the church would slowly and gradually overtake the world. And so the church as a whole believed in this amillennialism during this period. It was the main part of uh, the main belief, in, or the majority, I'd say, belief of eschatology. They didn't believe Jesus was coming as a thief to rapture his church. But Jesus here, he says, ha I am a thief. I am going to come as a thief. And the hour and his coming are all mentioned. He mentions the three things, thief, hour, and his coming which is very interesting that he would just target this one belief system that they, they had kind of really bought into. All in one sentence. Jesus targets all of them. So it, when he says thief, an hour, that makes us think of the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. And you probably need to turn there to see what this says. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 9. The title of the section is The Day of the Lord. And it says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So this is what Jesus wanted us to read. That's why he said the word thief. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So what follows this day of the Lord is bad stuff. Okay? His thieving comes first, and then bad stuff. Remember that. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us... Not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Well, that's exactly what Jesus has been telling this church. Watch, right? Be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet of hope, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there we have the whole doctrine explained. The doctrine that Jesus is telling them they have an issue with, that I wish you had a sola rapture or something, raptus maybe. And, and what he's saying is that God didn't appoint us to wrath. That's the whole purpose of the doctrine, is that God's saying, there's going to come a time of my wrath on this world. We see it described in the book of Revelation as the great, what? Tribulation. And he's saying, you are not supposed to be there. God didn't appoint you to wrath. God will never be angry at you and pour his wrath out on you. Why? Why is that not okay for God to do to a Christian? Yes, because we're in Christ and God already got angry at Jesus for us on the cross. So you never have to face his anger twice. That would be an unjust judge to punish the same thing twice. Double jeopardy. There you go. So, 
the rapture needs to be an important thing that we think about, that God is going to come back to take his church out before the time of his wrath. Before the time of his wrath is what this says. If you look at Matthew 25, there's all kinds of parables he gives about the ten virgins and the story of the five wise virgins and five foolish ones who, who are, some are watching and ready for Jesus to come. They filled their lamps with oil, and oil is a type of what in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. What did Jesus tell this church they were missing? The Holy Spirit. Jesus saying, you got to have the Holy Spirit so that you're watching and ready for my coming. If you're not, you're going to be like the five bridesmaids who were not ready and who were left behind. And that's a bummer. We don't want to be that. So then he says his coming. He mentions his coming. So we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just, to just one, one chapter before where we're at right now. He tells us specifically about his coming, what it looks like. He says here in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And that word caught up in the Greek is harpazo, in the Latin raptus, which we get our word rapture from. This is the word that we get rapture from. And we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And this is the great description of the rapture, us being caught up together. And where do we meet Jesus? In the clouds, okay? There's another time, seven years after the rapture, where Jesus comes down to the earth. Totally different event. The second coming of the Lord. It's a different time. This is the rapture. It happens seven years previous to that, where he takes the church up to heaven. He removes us from the time of his wrath being poured out on the world. And he... We were up in heaven at a big party called the Marriage Feast of the Lamb. It's pretty exciting. And Jesus tells this church here in Sardis, you will not be ready to go up in the rapture because you aren't watching. And they aren't watching because they don't really believe he's coming. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the rapture. You'd just be wrong. You can be saved and not believe in the rapture. I know lots of great people who have all kinds of weird views about the Bible, but they love God with all their heart, and they're my brothers and sisters, and we are totally united because we love Jesus more than anything. So I'm not saying this is a salvation issue, but this is, he wants us to be watching. I think it's something we can rely and depend upon. The real problem I see with other theology besides premillennial rapture theology is that it causes the focus to be somewhere other than Jesus himself. It's, it's like a distraction almost. I want to read to you Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 through 51. It says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, when they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the, the day that Noah entered the ark, and so they did not know that the flood until the flood came and took them all away. So the so will also be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and the other left. That is the rapture. 
Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore. Watch. Again, the, the same word always comes whenever he's talking about the rapture is watching. And he says, watch, therefore, for you don't know what hour the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known the hour that a thief <laughs> would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour which you do not expect. Who then is faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over all his household to give food in his due season? Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. So what is Jesus looking for? He's looking for people that are dispersing food and helping people and serving people and loving people when he comes. Because they're expecting him to come. Verse 47, Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's no longer looking for him and in an hour that he's not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him a portion with the hypocrites where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says that anything in your life, that causes you to say, man, I hope Jesus doesn't come right now, is evil. Is evil. He says it's the evil servant that says in his heart, my, my master delays his coming. And I think that there's some theologies, some eschatologies, study of end times events, some viewpoints that cause you to say, ah, it's going to be a while. I'm good. And then there's a viewpoint that says it's eminent. It's eminent. Imminent. Eminent? Which one? Imminent? Forgive me. <laughs> and I think that's what the book of Revelation teaches us. And the whole Bible is he wants us to have this imminent view of his coming, that it could come at any time. I mean, everything we just read says it's going to be a surprise, right? Okay, well, if it's at the end of the tribulation, that's a problem. Because the end of the tribulation is exactly, well, exactly 1,290 days after the Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. So I know the exact day of the end of the tribulation, so it can't be then. Well, maybe it's in the middle of the tribulation. Well, I know that's exactly 1,290 days from when the Antichrist is revealed. So it can't be in the middle of the tribulation either. I know those days. I'm going to be able to mark them on a calendar. Hmm, the only day we don't know is the rapture. The what kicks it all off. We know that the Antichrist can't even be revealed until the rapture happens. We're not going to know who the Antichrist is. Stop thinking it's whoever. <laughs> I, stop thinking that. <laughs> right now, you're thinking it. Stop it. <laughs> oh, well, my goodness. Um, the real church is gone when the Antichrist shows up. And we see that very clearly. Revelation 4 and 5, the church is up in heaven by the time the Antichrist shows up. Um, you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 for more information on that as well. Well, verse 4, we've got to get on with this. There's more he has to say. He says, There are few names, even in Sarvis, who have not defiled their garments. And then they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So there's some groups and some denominations that are okay, he says. They, they they're clothed in my blood, and the blood of Jesus makes you, what color? White, right? 
not a racial thing. This is a, a <laughs> this is a clothing thing. Not at all weird. But there, I'm telling you, some people have that theology. So I just want to make sure it's said. This is not a racial thing. All right. Keep their focus. Uh, you know, there's some denominations that do trust in God's word, and they keep their focus on what Jesus did on the cross. They keep their heart true to the gospel. And he's saying, if you're going to a Lutheran church, or if you're going to a Methodist church, or if you're going to this, that, or any of these churches that have these names, and you guys love Jesus, and you think about nothing except what Jesus did for you on the cross, great, white, go for it, awesome, white clothing, righteous, awesome. But if you guys trust in your name, your title, and the way you do things, and the man has become a movement machine, and you're living in a museum now, he says, guys, it's just dead. Come on. That's what makes us worthy, he says, when we trust in the works of Jesus Christ alone, not in the works of ourselves, in his works. Verse 5, he says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I'm going to read you a quote from Spurgeon to kind of explain this. But what shall be done with such persons as live in the church but are not of it, having a name to live but are dead? What shall be done with mere professors who are not possessors? What shall become of those who are outwardly religious but inwardly are the gall of bitterness? We answer, as good Calvin did once, they shall walk in black for they are unworthy. They shall walk in black, the blackness of God's destruction. They shall walk in black, the blackness of hopeless despair. They shall walk in black, the blackness of incomparable anguish. They shall walk in black, the blackness of damnation. They shall walk in black forever because they were found unworthy. See, we are given the option to be overcomers, though, and to walk in white. And to overcome, as, we, as we've seen in every single one of these letters, he said, if you overcome, you get this. If you overcome, you do that. Overcome equals a close union and connection with Jesus Christ himself. Not religion, not good works. It's faith. Do you trust Jesus? Are you connected with him and walking with him in that faith and trust? Hey, I, what are you going to say when you die and go to heaven? God says, why should I let you into my heaven? Hey, only because of what Jesus did on the cross. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Well, I did pretty good and I went to church a few times and I did this and I did that and I was baptized and I was this and the other. And you'll say, what? I didn't hear anything about my son, Jesus Christ. I did not hear by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It, that's the coat ticket for the white coat. That's all that we have. That's what the Bible says is all that we need is faith in Jesus Christ. When you overcome, you have a close union and connection with Jesus through humility and faith. Another way you can say it is saved by faith alone. It's glorious. It's perfect. And he says, And I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says of the church. And here Jesus very subtly confronts yet another 
troubling doctrines in this church, the Protestant church, one of the kind of destructive doctrines that really grew during this era and continues today is addressed right here. Jesus says clearly, I will blot his name out of the book of life. And that means Jesus can blot someone's name out of the book of life. Does that not make sense? If you just simply read the scriptures, that's what you would simply have to come away as the meaning. So this means that there is a book of life. And in the Bible, we see um, five different references, five different times in the Bible, to people being blotted out of the book of life. Five times God says this. This means that the idea, the idea of being blotted out of the book of life should be taken seriously. It should. Now, he won't do it to the person that overcomes. We already saw that. Not overcomes by their works, but someone who trusts in Jesus alone. I think we established that. He will not blot that person's name out, but he gives this warning. Anyone else, anyone who doesn't have that trust, can, he can and will blot their name out. It doesn't matter if they did believe. What do they believe now? All, this is all very consistent in the whole book of Revelation. He always is about now. What do you believe right now? We overcome by believing until the end. Until the end. The question needs to always be, what do you believe right now? We can't ask the question, was this person a believer? We can only ask, is this person a believer? The, the question of, was this person a believer, is just a, it doesn't work. You either are a believer, or, or you're not a believer. There's no was in it, okay? And this is how, you know, people get really into this on the semantics, and like, well, did a person lose their salvation or not? I'm not talking about that. I'm not trying to convince you of one side or the other. We're just going to look at what the Word of God says. And what the Word of God says, you should be really concerned about where you are right now. That's what the Word of God says. The Word of God doesn't say, oh, boys will be boys. You'll never lose it. The Bible says, be concerned. Be very concerned about your eternal state right now. And if you go through your life always being concerned about it and always have, ooh, do I trust the Lord? He says, you're going to be just fine. Be concerned about it. Don't rest and trust in something that was a long time ago. The Bible warns us very clearly. Now, I'm going to read to you a few scriptures that are going to help us understand this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, the gospel which I preached to you, that also was received in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here, I think he explains the whole thing. He says, if you, if you decide you don't believe in Jesus anymore, you believed in vain, it wasn't really real. Okay? That's, that's one way you can look at it. I see that. 
And the other way is to say you can believe in vain. In other words, you can think you believe in Jesus, but you don't. You didn't, or you don't now. What what's, happens is what is right now? Right now, you're living according to the world and don't trust in the Lord. So he says, you got to hold fast. You have to hold fast. Hebrews 3, verse 14. He says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. If you're partakers of Christ, you're in Christ, if it lasts your whole life, he says. If your faith lasts your whole, if you hold on to the word, the gospel, the good news, not your works. I understand that we mess up and there's times in your life where you backslide and you are not doing good works for a little while, huh? He says that doesn't cause you to lose your salvation. It's where your heart is. And you can struggle. And God says, where's your heart? Hold on to me in your heart. And then 2 Timothy 2.12, 2 Timothy 2 verse 12. If we endure, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Ha <laughs> ha. But if we deny him, he will also deny us. Well, that's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. Endurance is a lifelong descriptive word, but denying, what are you going to say right now? Right now. If it's, if it's a right now thing for you, and you're like, I deny Jesus right now. I don't want Jesus right now. Bro, you're not saved. You need to get saved. You need to repent and believe in Jesus alone. Wow, can you say that? I went to church a thousand times. I've been to church 50 years longer than you have. But where are you right now? That's the only question I can ask. Are you in Christ right now by faith? Yes or no? Okay, now look at uh, Romans 11.22. Romans 11.22. He says, therefore, consider, that means think about, the goodness and severity of God. He wants us to think about two things, how good God is and how severe he is or uh, how important things are. This is an important discussion. On those who fell, severity. But towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you will be cut off, he says. The whole discussion of, of our eternal security is a discussion of goodness of God. You can be secure eternally. And if you're saved today, I'm not trying to make you worry about your salvation. I'm trying to give you confidence that your salvation is in him alone and you don't have to worry and you don't have to fear if you can continue to believe in him, right? That's what I can offer. And this is something you can do even if you sin and mess up, which is great because I sin and I mess up. But I know I can keep believing in Jesus. That's one thing 
we can do. Crazy. When your salvation is based on faith alone, you can have confidence that nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. For we are in the love of Jesus Christ by faith alone and nothing else. Not one of you did something that God was like, oh, now I love you. No, God loved you the whole time he pursued you. And when you finally believed it and accepted it and received it, you received, it became real to you. Our works and our failures, they don't give us confidence. They could never give you confidence. If they could, then Jesus died in vain. His works do give me confidence. My works give me chagrin. His works give me hope. And he says, I offer you all of my works. It's the greatest exchange program in the history of the world. I offer you all my works and all my goodness in exchange for all that you have done and all your failure and all your terrible heart. Just give it all to me. Throw it all on me. It's all bad. And so Jesus paid for it on the cross. It was put to death on the cross. And he offers us an exchange. And he says, here's my life, my goodness. When God looks at you, he no longer will ever see your sin. He will only see my works of love, my good works, and you will be blessed when you're in me. That's how it works. It's so simple. If you're not saved though, And if you're not believing today, if you do not have a real trust in Jesus Christ as your only way to get saved, if you don't really think he was your substitute, I am trying to make you afraid. Hopefully I'm doing a good job. I want you to know that you're guilty. The law condemns you. You're a sinner and you're going to hell unless you repent and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. That's what's going on. That's what happens at every church service throughout all of history, or should. The pastor should talk about the law until people feel guilty and are convicted about their sin and then rush in with grace so they can understand that God is taking care of it if they would humble themselves and come to him. That's how it all works very simply. Turn away from your old self and turn to Jesus Christ instead. That's all of salvation just quickly wrapped up. Well, we've said this a couple times today and we repeat it once more. Just because you believe the right things does not make you alive. And that's what was wrong about this church. They formed little groups with little names and they said, these are what we believe, but they had left behind true faith in Jesus Christ. And they talked a lot about faith. But in reality, Jesus says, it's not about me. It's about you and your little churches and your denominations. And I'm disappointed and it's, it's bad news, guys. It's bad news. We cannot think that just because we understand eschatology, like I think I understand it, maybe I'm totally wrong. Who knows? But I'm not. Or we think we understand the perseverance of the saints' doctrine. If we think that those things give us life today, if I'm relying on my theology to give me life today, I am in big trouble. 
Or just because we have a heritage in Calvary Chapel, which is a great Bible-believing church and Bible-teaching church with great many men of God, we are in danger of following Chuck Smith, even though he's dead, when we could be following Jesus Christ, who is alive. And I know he would roll over in his grave if he saw how some Calvaries extol him. They're just about to call themselves Lutherans except Smithians. We don't live by association. We don't. And that's what was the problem here. They lived by association. I'm right with God because I'm a Lutheran, they would say. Guys, you're only right with God by Jesus Christ. And guess what? Some of the Catholics are too. They know Jesus Christ and they love him too. All of us who love Jesus Christ and him alone are right with God. It's amazing. We must watch, Jesus says. We must be sure that we have a true, real relationship with him, that we're humble before him. We don't assume we have it all together, but we're humble. Are we humble? Do we repent often? Is that what your life looks like? Or do you like to go a few days without repenting just so you feel a little better about yourself? I do that sometimes. Are we mindful of his kingdom? Are we trusting his word or our own ideas? Are we waiting for his word to tell us what needs to be done? Or are we just going on our own plans? All of these can only be changed by being broken in his presence and allowing his life and life-giving grace to flow into us by humility and faith. This is the truth. No matter what religion you go to, no matter what church you go to, religion, um, denomination. You can go to any church you want that preaches Jesus Christ. If you will trust God in humility and faith, his life will flow into you and he's happy. He wants nothing else from you. You can minister there, you can serve there, you can love those people. We don't get victory from a name. Are we trusting in a name or are we trusting in a person? Jesus Christ. So this whole thing today is that we're learning the Protestant church struggled with the M cycle. A man who was used, given a ministry, became a movement, became a machine, eventually became a museum. The only way to avoid that is humbly trusting the Lord and connecting with him personally, not trusting in our names and our denominations. You guys all understand that? Then you understand the word of God perfectly? Go forth and prosper. Jesus, I, I want to lift up those who are sick in our congregation. Lord, we pray for Rhea, and, and we know that her tummy's really been bothering her, and we pray that you would give her relief. You would give uh, the right kinds of things inside her body that she needs, Lord, and you would, you would bring her uh, peace. Lord, we pray for all those who have been struggling and sick. We pray for Scott and Caroline who are out um, uh, with his dad, and I just pray you give him patience and you give him boldness to speak the truth and love, Lord. And I pray you would comfort them, uh, Lord, like only you can. I pray that Scott's heart would be completely set on you. And Lord, he would, um, he would be victorious by overcoming through his faith in you, Lord. We pray for um, our hearts, Lord, that we would never fall into the trap of not watching, of depending on our, on our heritage or location, even our, our nationality. Lord, anything, Lord, I pray that we would... Cast it all aside for 
the one thing that matters is real faith in you, real trust in your word and real hope in what you give. And Lord, I pray that if anyone in here today just wants to renew their commitment to you or give you their heart for the first time and, and really ask by faith that you would forgive them or their sins. Lord, you're the only one that can forgive sin. And the only reason you can forgive sin is because Jesus Christ paid for it. He bought it. Why you would want to buy our sin, I don't know. Except you tell me that you love me. And Lord, I pray for each person here that they would be right with you by faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by anything else. Lord, we trust you in your word. I thank you that you can make us loving people. And I pray you would make our love increase. Lord, we can be bold about doctrine, but I pray that it would always be surrounded by love. And I pray that everyone who we talk to would know that we care about them and that we would die for them if called to. Jesus, we thank you that we can worship you in spirit and truth, and I pray that you would be happy when you see us and when you hear our words and smell even our brokenness. And I pray that it would, it would bring a smile to your face today. Thank you for drawing near to me when I don't deserve it. In your name we pray, amen.